Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. My name is Bill Cowan. We don't come to you as Republicans or Democrats or with any party affiliation. We come to you instead as Americans who care. Americans who care about our country and about our comrades in arms. We don't deal with failed leadership, false promises, and Washington double talk when American lives are at stake. But those are the exact problems that the Select Committee on Benghazi uncovered. I mean, Libya was a different uh, kind of uh, calculation. Yeah. And we didn't lose a single person. We didn't lose a single person. We didn't lose a single person. Single person, single person, single person. We honor the memories of Ambassador Chris Stevens, Sean Smith, Glenn Darty, and Tyrone Woods. Their families have dealt with the reality of their deaths because of their service to America. And this is the simple story of those men's reality on the ground in Benghazi. Our intelligence agencies knew that some of the rebels we supported were terrorists. Some were members of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. All of them were Al-Qaeda groups on the State Department terrorist list. One of the terrorist commanders was even a former inmate at Guantanamo Bay. The day before the Benghazi terrorist attacks, President Obama conferred with his cabinet to see what might be needed for the anniversary of 9-11. Hillary Clinton and Leon Panetta were present. Not a single change was made that might have helped those in the high-risk area of Benghazi. It was sudden, violent, and brutal. It was a terrorist attack. No one could have possibly known how long it would last. Glenn Dory was in Tripoli. His comrades were under attack. He answered their calls for help and went to the sound of the guns. At 7 p.m. in Washington, Panetta ordered the appropriate staff in the DOD to initiate movement, some three plus hours after the message came in that there were Americans under fire. At a 7.30 meeting, Hillary Clinton's State Department requested that the Marines go in civilian clothes, no military uniforms and no weapons, in a war zone where Americans were under fire because they didn't want to look like an invasion because we didn't want to offend anybody. Really? And even before the final American deaths occurred, Secretary Clinton sent out a statement blaming it on a spontaneous protest about a video, while privately telling others it was a terrorist attack. Most folks don't take mortars to a protest. In the end, not one U.S. military aircraft, not one soldier outside of Libya was sent to Benghazi where a battle dragged on for hours. Washington never intended to send anybody to Benghazi. Americans don't leave a man behind. It's not who we are. It's not what we do. Yet we don't want our teammates coming home in flag-draped coffins because of failed leadership, false realities, and Washington bureaucrats who don't have their policies or priorities straight. We want them coming home with honor to their families and a grateful nation that can say, thank you for your service. Please welcome 
Geist and John Teagan, members of the Benghazi Annex Security Team and co-authors of the book, 13 Hours. for showing us the support and the dedication that should have been offered by Hillary and her State Department to those who actually save their asses. September 11, 2012, at approximately 9.35, 9.40, we got a call the U.S. consulate had been overrun. We immediately got our gear ready to go, got, got the vehicles ready, and we got, on three separate occasions, we got told to wait by the Chief of Base, Bob, and we got told to stand down. You know, next thing we know, we hear uh, the State Department over the radio saying, hey, if you guys don't get here, we're all going to die. Stand down in order to be damned. Embassies, the concert's under siege. We took off, we left. We weren't waiting no more. As uh, the three of us moved on to the consulate, uh, the first thing you see is uh, the main village just engulfed in fire and smoke, you know, and just just pouring out. Uh, moved up to the front steps of the consulate, off to my right, I see them pulling a body out of the window, limp body, and ended up being Sean Smith, and he was already dead of smoke inhalation by the time we showed up. Uh, myself and Ron continued to move. We went in. Just the heat of the fire, you know, just blasting our face. The smoke just obliterated our, our sight. It was so thick. We tried to get on our bellies to see underneath the smoke. Uh, it was no luck. A little while later, Tonto and DB came through the back gate. As they moved away onto the consulate grounds, started searching. After a few minutes, Tonto went and helped the State Department guys uh, gather up the classified information, get them ready to go in their armored vehicle, and all of a sudden, we end up getting a counter-assaulted. And at that time, instead of the State Department security agents jumping out and helping us defend their U.S. consulate, they took off, which left the six of us to defend the consulate. You know, I, I got out, went up on the, uh, the roof of the villa, made my way up to the, uh, towards the back gate. The guy who initiated was with an RPG. On his third shot, as he's coming out, as I came over the top of the parapet, I let loose in about a 10-round volley, and he dropped. It was calm for about five minutes. Then we got word they were gathering about another 100 or so terrorists from the drone feed that good old Hillary is watching. And it came to a point where we had to make a decision. You no, know, at that time we didn't know the U.S. ambassador was even still at the consulate. If he had been kidnapped prior to us even getting there, but we're pretty sure if he was there, he was dead. You know, we had a responsibility of 30 other personnel over at the annex, so we had to make the tough decision, and we headed back to the annex without the ambassador. 
You know, as the team arrived back at the annex, we took up our fighting positions because we knew that they were going to be following up from the consulate and coming to our place. But we, you know, we were ready for them. We started seeing movement on the east side of our compound. And then all of a sudden, something came flying over the wall, had sparks flying from it, landed between Tig and I, and exploded. And that's when they opened up on us, but we also unleashed some hell on them. The first wave had about 20 terrorists in it. They went away with a whole lot less. After that uh, first initial firefight, you know, Oz, Ozzy's being kind of old, you know, he's like 40 years older than I am, so he, he had to pull out his med kit, <laughs> grab some gauze, he's like shoving in his ear. It's really funny, it looks like he's got a tampon on his butt. Sorry. But, you know, I kind of smile at him, I look at him and say, hey, you know, is that kind of loud much? And then, you know, that's because Tick come right up beside me, stuck his gun right here, fired right next to my left ear. I can't hear out of it to this day, thanks to him. He should have moved. <laughs> You know, soon after that, we got word that the uh, support team from Tripoli, led by Glenn Doherty, had landed at Benghazi Airport. You think the airport security in the United States is bad, you ought to try landing at an airport in a foreign country controlled by a militia that you don't know who their loyalty is to, and you've got a bunch of guns and a bag of money. Thank goodness money talks. Mine doesn't. So, you know, Going around 1.30 in the morning, you still have the U.S. ambassador, he's still missing. And, you know, still we got movement starting to come up again on our east side. And, you know, I get on the radio and said, hey, you know, hey, Bob, is there, uh, are they going to secure the outer perimeter? Again, you're looking at 1.30, about three and a half hours into the attack, and we get the answer, I don't know. Good intel. At that point, a vehicle actually came out of the darkness. A guy uh, jumped out of the vehicle, immediately drew his arm back. How I saw him, you know, old age with the eyes, he ended up picking him out, threw three rounds into him, he dropped like a back of a sack of potatoes, you know, and you would take that guy out, and another guy would pop up, and then another guy would pop up. You know, it's kind of like that arcade game uh, down on the uh, main strip, you always go play whack-a-mole. Guy'd stick his head up and you'd take him out. Another guy'd stick his head up and you'd shoot him. <laughs> you know, pretty much about a little bit after that, we uh, got a call that the uh, ambassador was located at the hospital in Benghazi. Um, you know, there was no way for us to determine if this was a valid, if he was alive, if he was dead. You know, we don't know if it could have been a, a trick for us, you know, to spread our def to spread our defense, you know, and you know, pretty much, you know, just kind of screw everybody else over at the consulate. But you know, we had we, we had decided to stay put again. You know, at this time, I had moved from where I was at with Tig and got up on top of the roof. We call it Building C. Now I was up there with uh, Tyrone, and you know, me and during the downtime, me and Tyrone had started talking about um, events that night. And Tyrone had told me about earlier that night when Tig had saved his life because he got lost in the smoke of the building over at the consulate and he started yelling out for Tig and Tig with uh, total disregard for his own safety after having just come out of a, the smoke-filled room 
went back in and pulled Tig uh, and pulled Tyrone out. It was during that, you know, and we also, he was talking about his kids. And uh, it was really, because uh, all of us had a lot of young kids there, every one of us that was there. And heck, Jack had just found out that his wife had been pregnant. And so he had a newborn baby coming. And, you know, none of us at that point knew if we were going to make it home or not. And this is getting on to about that time in the morning, about 5.30, when the sun starts coming up. And you start seeing that change off on the horizon where the sky turns from really dark to that, that, that dark blue, kind of starting to turn light blue. And you're hearing the morning prayers from uh, the minarets in the distance. About the time the, uh, the call for prayer finished, you know, we thought, hey, the next tack is going to be here. About that time when we heard over the radio that Glenn and the team from Tripoli had made their way uh, to the annex and were just getting ready to pull in. And when they did, instead of going inside the building, Tig, um, I'm sorry, Glenn, he came up on top of the roof. He wanted to get in the fight. So he joined us up there. You know, and Tyrone introduced me to Glenn because I'd never met him before. First thing out of my mouth was, it's good to have another gunfighter up on top of that roof. He kind of turned and started walking away from me, and it was about that time that the uh, final attack started. A rocket-propelled grenade hit the back wall, and small, small arms fire opened up from the north, right in front of me and Ty. A mortar hit on top of the, our, our outer wall, our outer perimeter wall, and the State Department guy yelled out that he was hit. Took some shrapnel up into his forehead. We opened up fire. Tyrone opened up with a machine gun. I opened up with my assault rifle. And that's when the second mortar hit. Hit about 15 feet to my right. The explosion kind of knocked me back a little bit. And as I stood back up, I kind of noticed that Roan was in a fetal position to my left at my feet. And I raised my left hand up to grab my rifle and start shooting. And that's when I noticed that I was first injured. And my left arm about six inches above the, uh, above the wrist was kind of hanging off at a 90 degree angle. It was then that the third mortar hit. And as I glanced over my right shoulder, I noticed that Glenn went face down on the roof. And he was out of the fight. I tried again to bring my arm up and grab my weapon because I wanted to get it back into the fight. And it just wouldn't work. I couldn't get it to hold on. And that's when the fourth mortar hit. And that's really the first time that I ever felt like any pain that night. And it felt like I got stung by like a thousand bees. I figured at that time, this hard-headed Marine probably ought to get to some cover in case they drop another one on us. Simplify, thank you. So I dove for cover and everything went quiet. God bless you, thank you. I pulled the tourniquet out, started to get it on my arm, but I kind of got distracted. I wanted to check on Ron, so I crawled over, tried to find a pulse. Couldn't find one. And it was about that time I saw a shadow come up on top of the roof, and that was Tig. The dust and debris still hadn't even finished falling when he got it, when he come up on that roof. I was, uh, he kind of got scared where we were initially fighting out of, so he went on the roof. And, you know, as I'm standing there, and, you know, the first round, you know, he was saying the Ron was just laying hate pretty much, and, you know, when that first round hits, hits the roof, it just went dead quiet. Um, you know, the debris was so thick, you couldn't see the stars, you couldn't see, I mean, it just went pitch black, pitch quiet. I start moving towards the uh, building C, 
and I get on the radio and I said, hey, you guys all right up on building, up, up on building C? Um, of course, I didn't res expect a response at all, but the, our, the team leader gets on the radio and says, you know, hey, we're all right in here. Of course, you have to tell them to shut up and talk about the guys up on the roof. Um, Jack gets on and says, hey, got no movement, ran over there. You know, first thing I do, and I, I jump over the parapet, the first guy I see is a state guy. He's kind of leaning up against the wall. He's got his pistol out. Uh, you know, his left leg just below the knees, almost completely severed off. His left arm below the elbow is almost completely severed off. And I had to disarm him really quick. Lucky he didn't shoot me. Um, maybe I got a medal if he would have, but I don't know. Um, I, got, I got two tourniquets. You know, put a tourniquet on his leg, put a tourniquet on his arm. You know, I'm, I'm asking for extra help from the guys below inside uh, the building. And, you know, the whole time I'm also doing that, I'm hearing kind of some, like something crying behind me. It's kind of a weird sound. I don't usually hear that too often in combat. But, you know, so I, I, I get him done. I give him back his pistol. I unloaded it, of course, because, you know, you're not going to give him a loaded pistol back. But as I start moving across, you know, again, I can hear the whimpering. And the next, oh, there, the next thing I know, I, I notice it's Oz. He's kind of sitting his back up against the wall, playing with his wrist, you know, like a little kid, you know, like this. And I'm like, hey, dude, you need to quit doing that. You're going to make it worse. I kind of figured I was trying to put it back in place, but it wouldn't stay there. <laughs> yeah, I, needed, I didn't have any super glue. But, uh, so you know, he had his tourniquet out. I grabbed his tourniquet. Uh, I, I got his tourniquet on his arm, stood him up and said, hey, man, can you uh, get to the ladder by yourself? I told him, yeah, because hell yeah, because I knew that Ty and Glenn still needed help. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I was still hoping that they were alive. So I walked over to the ladder that went down and uh, kind of sat up on the ledge and I'm sitting there looking down thinking, okay, how am I going to get down off this thing? You know, I, I just survived two, uh, two or three assaults on our compound and three mortars landed on me and next thing you know, I'm sitting there thinking, my luck, I'm going to fall off this darn roof and break my neck. You know, those aren't the stories I want my kids to hear about how I died. I'm only, if I'm going to go out, I want to go out in a blaze of glory. So I ended up hooking my good arm on the top rung of the ladder and I was thinking I'm going to swing my feet down around and land on the ladder. But sure enough, you know, Murphy's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong. So right as I kind of slid my feet down, I fell off the ladder. Luckily, I caught myself with my good arm. I kind of pulled myself back up, got myself together and climbed on down the ladder. Turned to, walked around through the front of the building, uh, meeting one of our other guys coming out. And he walked me in and laid me down on the floor. And... I was sitting there and they were looking at me and I told them, you know, hey, you need to cut my clothes off because I know I got a bunch of other holes in me. I know there's a bunch of other wounds that need to be treated. So finally they got my clothes cut off of me and we found about 20 or 30 other shrapnel holes. Most of them weren't bleeding too bad, so we got the big ones plugged and uh, ready to go again. You know, that, after I got Oz up and, you know, he, he kind of mumbled a little bit because he, he lost his uh, cane. When the, when the mortars hit, so he, he didn't have a cane to walk across the roof anymore. Um, but, you know, immediately I went over to where uh, the next guy was, which was Roan. I rolled him over, uh, immediately checked for a pulse. His uh, throat moved just a little bit. I didn't get a pulse, so I immediately ripped off his body armor, you know, lift up his shirt, and did what we call look, listen, feel. Kind of put your ear on their mouth, so you're trying to heal, hear or feel their breath and see if their chest or their stomach's moving at all. I uh, didn't get anything. I uh, got the flashlight, uh, checked for a pupil dilation, and there was nothing. So at that moment, I, you know, I knew he was gone. And, you know, I knew Oz, he just went down. 
and you know, so I knew the next radio call was going to be for him, and because Ron was also our medic, um, so I had announced, "Hey, you know, Ron's gone." Got up, moved over to the next guy, uh, which ended up being a, you know, Glenn Doherty Bub. Again, same like Oz. Never worked with him. Never met him. Uh, rolled him over. Same thing. Checked for a pulse. Look, listen, feel. Uh, did a people dilation. Same thing. There was nothing. Uh, immediately went back over to Roan, grabbed all of his uh, weapons and stuff like that, kneeled down, said a prayer over him, went over, went over to Bub, and I'll grab his weapon system, kneeled down, and said a prayer over him. At that time, you know, we all got off the roof, and, you know, we knew we had to, we had to get out of there. Um, we had to get everyone that's out of there, because there's nothing that we had that could defend against a mortar attack, and the fact that a building just got hit by three 81-millimeter mortars and it didn't collapse on everybody inside, well, it definitely wasn't the construction of the building. It was definitely from upstairs. It was the grace of God. Once we got all the, us, us wounded stabilized, we secured the dead, we made sure that we didn't have any critical information left behind. And that's when we made our way to the airport. To get there, we ended up having to enlist the uh, and militia. Happened to be Gaddafi loyalists. Those are the ones that helped, uh, that Hillary wanted to get out of, out of uh, Libya. They were the ones that helped the Americans get to the hospitals and get to the airport. When we got there, we loaded up the non-shooting personnel. I, was, I made my trip in the back of a Hilux pickup truck. It's kind of like a Toyota. Um, they came over me, I was sitting on a gurney, and they came over to grab the gurney, and that's when I kind of sat up and I told them, I walked into Benghazi, I'm going to walk out. Yeah, yeah and that was the same plane that had uh, brought Glenn and the guys down from Tripoli. But, you know, this, this was one of the planes that Glenn didn't make it back on. You know, the plane that they actually cured, the Tripoli team secured from a Libyan that they actually just met that day. Again, I don't think it's really a coincidence. You know, we got, a, we got a, an overwatcher with us that night. You know, we got everybody loaded up, headed to Tripoli, and then we had to turn our task, because we got left, we didn't get left behind, we stayed behind because they couldn't hold everybody. Uh, again, the Gaddafi loyalist militia stepped up and said, hey, we can go get the ambassador. They took off, they came back, returned with the ambassador's body. Myself, Tonto, and one of the Delta Force guys, you know, made check sure, make sure it was him, looked him over. You know, he was wearing the exact same clothes he was wearing that morning when I saw him, when uh, we went over there because there was a threat on a local, well, there was a threat on a government compound that day. And, you know, but he was wearing the exact same clothes. The only difference, you know, he had black soot on his feet, on his fingernails, around his ears, you know, and, but there was no sign of torture, no sign of mutilation. You know, it was obvious to us he died of smoke inhalation. And all those rumors about that happening to him and our whole government not squashing it right away is a bunch of bull, bull crap. Um, You know, at that point, you know, we still didn't know how we were going to actually get out of there. 
Uh, several minutes go, you know, several, like, a lot of minutes go by. C-130 starts rolling down the, the runway. We're thinking, oh, this might be for us. It kind of comes a little bit closer, but then does a U-turn, pulls off to a little hangar area and shuts down. We see all the crew get off, the pilots get off. You know, we kind of stand there for a little bit. Well, the team, one of the team members that came down from Tripoli and the linguist that came down from Tripoli went over there and it took them about 15 minutes or so and they kind of persuaded the, the pilots to take us back up to Tripoli. And again, the last American to leave Benghazi, we didn't leave on an American plane, but we left on a Libyan plane flown by Libyans. You know, the first U.S. bird, any U.S. asset we saw wasn't a jet. It was a medical transport bird that took us all to Germany about 5 p.m. on September 12th. You know, at least 20 minutes after a siege, right? But it was about 20 minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in that night, there were more than 30 American lives that were saved that night. And it's because Americans never give up. We refuse to lose. Benghazi's been a four-letter word for the left, but it's not about politics. Benghazi was about opportunities. Opportunities taken when we defied the stand-down orders. And opportunities squandered when Hillary failed to protect her people on the ground. Had she done her job that night, had she done her job that night, we wouldn't have had to compromise the annex. Ty, Glenn, Sean, and Ambassador Stevens would be alive today. Now, now we as Americans, we have an opportunity and that opportunity is to elect, elect someone who will make this country safe again. We have to elect someone who will have our backs. Someone who will bring our guys home. Won't leave anybody behind. We have to elect someone who will lead with strength and integrity. And I believe that person is Donald Trump. We did our part. Every fallen veteran did their part. Now do yours. Now it's time to you do, you do yours. God Thank bless you. you. Thank you all. Thank you, America. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives. Streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 